Welcome everybody to the Healing Place podcast. I am your host, Terry Welbrock, and really excited to have with me today, Andrea Winkler, LCAS, LCSW, and Andrea comes to us from Duke University Hospital, where she is a clinical social worker. So welcome, Andrea. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to get to talk with you today. Absolutely. So we're having some video feed issues, but we're going to put some information and in, in, uh, the headshot up here so everyone will be able to uh, see Andrea and then I'll put when I do some editing on the video end of it I'll put uh, contact information for you as well that'd be great I appreciate that absolutely so yes talk to us one of the things we had talked about before I hit record was um, substance abuse and the connection with trauma yeah yeah so um, if it's okay I'll tell you kind of how I came to care a little bit about that work So um, my career in trying to help folks, I'd say in general, actually started in the woods of Western North Carolina doing wilderness therapy with teenage girls, um, which was work I really enjoyed. And that made me decide to go get a master's at Chapel Hill in social work. And while I was there, I found an interest in um, pursuing more understanding about addictions in general. And one of the really cool things about substance use disorder treatment is that Um, It's a gendered field. So it's one of the few mental health areas where we talk about the distinctions between um, women's experiences in general and men's experiences in general. Um, And as someone who has always been very interested in women's issues and working with women, uh, it was really a natural fit for me. And so I, you know, began learning more about that in school and then out of school found a gender specific substance use treatment program here at Duke. Um, And when you work with women who have addictions, you work with women who have experienced trauma. Um, They just really go hand in hand. So I think at this point, you know, the statistics suggest that, you know, upwards of 90% of women who are in treatment for substance use disorder have um, some kind of trauma history, if not PTSD but even rates of PTSD are much higher in that population than the general population. So more in the 40% um, range, uh, which is substantially higher than the general population. So this is to say, like I kind of come into this interest from caring about women actually, um, which I feel proud of and and really good about. But um, I also have learned that, you know, this is relevant to everyone as you know right being connected to aces i mean part of what's so overwhelming is that there's so many people who have had some exposure to some traumatic event um and yeah that it it shapes our lives in bio you know biological but also emotional spiritual ways and it's pretty powerful stuff right for sure and i i find hope in the fact that aces are now surfacing I mean, the, the, the knowledge of it in ACEs science because now there's just oh my gosh I mean you know you see it on the ACEs connection side as much as I do it's just the amount of uh, research being done and the programs being offered to help people with this um, the work that you're doing is just yeah that's phenomenal stuff that just wasn't uh, you know obviously you've been doing this work but it just it just wasn't bubbling up yeah like it is. I know I joke about it because I've actually been training in trauma-informed care before trauma-informed care was cool. 
Like I, I, I think it's been so funny. Like I started this probably about 10 years ago, nine years ago. And, um, and it's blown up just while I've been doing this work, you know, the, the request for trainings has exponentially increased other people throwing that language around has exponentially increased. And now I've seen, you know, there's now even a, a commentary on um, wanting to shift the language and like trauma-informed care is out and something new is already oh, in, right? Like, right. Um, and I'm happy to see that. It means we're, you know, there are people taking a critical eye um, to the whole to the whole thing. So it's yeah. fun to just, just see that timeline. But for me, like, you know, the the value of helping this especially healthcare, you know, one of your questions on the interview sheet there was about like, who do I want to reach and, and, and why do I want to reach those people? And I don't know if it's because of working in a massive healthcare setting here at Duke um, for the last decade, but that is certainly the group that I'm most passionate about, about reaching and about training and about, you know, helping is actually healthcare providers, because I'm so struck by how sad it is in a way that oftentimes people are going to get help from a healthcare provider. And yet without intending to, healthcare providers and healthcare settings can often be very unsafe and re-traumatizing for people. Yeah. Um, and so there are these tiny shifts that actually can be made in the approach, like the interpersonal approach, but also the the setting. Um, that have such value for helping trauma survivors be able to fully engage in those services that folks want to provide them. Um, and the data bears it out, right? Like your, the ACEs and the science shows that um, if people attend to these needs, their ability to have any associated treatment outcome that people are trying to get uh, is much more likely. So to me, it just feels really powerful and I love that work. Yeah. And you just said, you just took the word out of my mouth when you said powerful. I was going to say that it's about empowering them with the belief that, you know, they're their own advocate and that um, they're, they're worthy of this healing. They're worthy of, um, you know, being able to finally do the work necessary to, to move past the trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and to me, it's also just a, a practice in all of us learning to be more empathetic and uh, get out of our own shoes, right? I mean, I think oftentimes healthcare providers can become very complicit in the fact that they're used to doing the things they do all the time because for them, they're just ordinary things, right? Like right. having a, a pap smear or having doing someone's dental work or like this is just something they do every day it's like a non-starter right doesn't um but for a lot of people especially trauma survivors it's it's not it's not a normal experience right even some basic health care is actually in some ways um, intrusive and uncomfortable and you know unnerving because they're not certain not so sure what it's going to be like and and all those things and so um there's a long history of like healthcare doing to people instead of doing with people. And I, I think there's just such an opportunity there for, for collaborating with a patient so that they fully participate, fully engage and, and get 
value out of their healthcare, you know, and then avoiding, you know, unnecessary discomfort and conflict. I mean, I've seen and experienced as a patient moments where, um, you know, there's some kind of interpersonal discomfort uh, because of that lack of um, sort of thoughtfulness around these trauma issues. And um, it would just be lovely if we could avoid that as a yeah. system. I had, I had a podcast guest talk a little bit about that in, in a, uh, like a mammogram setting and saying mm-hmm. he set up, um, you know, these little privacy booths to ask these questions of people. And yet, no, you try to keep it as private as possible, obviously for HIPAA reasons, but that some people, you know, just felt extremely uncomfortable answering some of these questions knowing that there were other people around that could hear. So then they decided, oh, well, we'll take people back to a private room and then just Mm -hmm. one-on-one. But then some people are extremely triggered by being in an enclosed space with Mm -hmm. another individual. So then it became about, and I loved this, asking about the needs of the person. Are you okay? Would you rather go to a private room or would you, are you okay to answer here and allowing that person to make that decision of how they best needed to answer the questions. Yeah. That's one of my favorite parts of teaching people about being trauma-informed and creating a trauma-informed environment is that it's not about prescribing, like it's not about predicting every single person's needs and prescribing the safest option. It's about like having a collaborative, you know, approach to the care planning and really being willing to, you know, ask those questions and let people have lots of choices, right? So um, there's a lot we can do to anticipate what people need. And I think to thoughtfully prevent some of the things we know bother trauma survivors. But I think we also can, yeah, create policies and practices that just give people a lot of choice in their experience. Well, and I think that people really truly do want to help on a, on a different note, but in the same light. I was traveling two years ago with my sister, and I was just starting to face those travel fears through my own CPTSD and healing journey. And so um, these reservations were made, and they were made on a high floor of a hotel room. And so I reached out to the management staff and said, hey, here's my history, here's my story. Is there any way that I can get on, you know, the first four floors, I think I can do it. (laughs) And the response was beautiful. I mean, they were so incredible and so accommodating. And, you know, the the manager said, please stop by down and say hi to me, which I did. And we had a huge hug, you know, once I got there. But Mm -hmm. people, I think, are wanting to understand other people's needs. Um, Yeah. I think that's... Yeah, I think you're right. That's true. I mean, I often have an optimistic vision of humanity, despite all right. the hard and bad things that we see. So I'm with you on that. Um, I do think, too, that, you know, something that complicates people's ability to provide that is sometimes their own their own stuff, right? So their own traumatic experiences, their own strategies for learning to cope with anxiety and distress, their own strategies and learning around interpersonal conflict and like how do you deal with people who are aggressive or intimidating, right? right. And so I think unfortunately, you know, even those 
people, especially healthcare providers that are like really well intended, like you're saying, and, you know, do have a, a tendency to want to be helpful that they can be sort of just taken off guard, right? Or like have the feel like the ground just moved from beneath them. And all of a sudden, they're acting out of their own trauma history. And they're engaging with this aggressive patient out of their sense of what it means to be appropriate. And, you know, you know, the rules are different, right? They're following their own rules based on their own experiences yeah. and that kind of thing. So one of the things I love about trauma-informed care is that there is this huge emphasis, not just on care for the patients, but on attention to the providers, right? That we know secondary trauma is huge for people who work with people who have trauma history. We know that there are organizational factors that can prevent the likelihood that staff will be traumatized by the work and that there are um, risk factors in organizations that make that more likely, right? And we know that we can do provider like self-care support and, um, there's a lot of things we know we can do to help people who have to interface with traumatized folks, which honestly at times are very challenging folks to interface with, especially folks who haven't done a great deal of work, right? Because their nervous system is on super out of control, you know, heightened state. And so they can be reactive and um, feel often very unsafe and threatened and respond appropriately, right? For that feeling, even yeah. if that feeling is out of place. So. Um, these aren't always the easiest people to interact with. And so I think it's valuable to be able to normalize that, right, for staff in any setting, but then say, you know, hey, it's really on you to be aware of what's going on for you in these interactions so that you can be as effective as you want to be and reduce conflict and have a safe exchange, right? Because, um, that's not something we're necessarily, especially healthcare providers, I mean, in social work, right, obviously, right. in counseling fields, there's much more of like, hey, let's attend to what's happening with me so that I'm aware of what's happening interpersonally. But I, there's many healthcare settings where that's certainly not, you know, people aren't trained to think about their own psychological or emotional response to their patients, right? Um, right. But from this vantage point, that's important, actually. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I, I think, you know, like police officers and, oh, um, yeah. you know, there, there's just so many professions. Like you said, I worked in a mental health agency and yes, they allowed us the opportunity to then process, you know, anything that we may have experienced, Okay. Um, which was wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but yes, I mean, I totally understand what you're saying and yeah. that self-care aspect of it. Yes. Right. Right. And the, I love, you know, when we talk about other professions where, I mean, the trauma exposure is even potentially more intense because it's experienced firsthand rather than secondhand, like in a counseling setting, right? Um, that, that the culture of those places, you know, either protect or create risk for people to be traumatized by the experience, right? I mean, I'm not, it's not to say that those systems are inherently and entirely to blame, but it is interesting to think about what an organization can do to support, you know, kind of the healthy processing of that very difficult material. Um, it's interesting to me. And I, I work, my trainings have taken me a lot of places. And um, one of those has been to a variety of our um, bases here and working with service members um, a bit. So folks in the um, military and folks, Air Force and stuff. And um, 
it's always very interesting because we do eventually come to this line about discussing culture, right? And that to some degree, being trauma-informed can be a cultural shift. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah, and, it's a different way to orient oneself. It is. And I, you know, my dream is to have a trauma-informed world, but yes, <laughs> it is. It is a cultural shift. It's, Me too. It's to be able to step back and say, even from an individual, just a personal level, to be able to step back and say, um, you know, what, what is truly going on with this person? What, and to look at it through the lens, which, you know, yeah. is, is very calm, like coming more and more, I see it more often on Facebook posts, um, instead of, you know, what's wrong with the person, what happens to that person. Yeah. But yeah, it is perfect. truly about that, ha looking at it through that lens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think too, I always, with the, you know, training staff, I'm often talking about shifting that sort of internal monologue from, you know, what is this person doing to me, right? Yeah. And more so, more so, you know, it, how, how hard it must be for them to act this way with people in the world, right? That it's actually not about us. They would be treating, you know, Sally, whomever, the same exact way. That right. this is how they function interpersonally. It's not actually a reflection of you necessarily, right? Um, right. Which reduces the, you know, when we can depersonalize things in that way, in that healthy way, um, we then can be able to stay in our own cognitive functioning where we can be rational and logical and make good decisions, right? Right. Um, so biologically, it, it supports our ability to do that, which I yeah. love. Yeah. yeah. And, and what you said earlier about if we can, if we can not let our own trauma history be triggered and yeah. be aware and cognizant of it, then yes, we have a better right. chance of thinking rationally and responding. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We say, I say all the time, like once people are in that spot and they're in that part of that brain where they're perceiving a threat to their survival, you are not having a real conversation. Like right. whatever you're trying to teach or reason out or try and work through, it ain't happening. Right. <laughs> right. Amen. Yes. Yeah. So I love it. Just get off subject for just a second. I love it that you said you're, you started out in the Western Carolina, North Carolina, because I, my in-laws family is from Franklin. Okay. Um, yeah. It's so beautiful there. It is uh, beautiful there. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I loved. I loved living there. It was great. Yeah. yeah. Very, very yeah. pretty. We go down on the holidays and you know, oh, Thanksgiving, good. and it's just. Um, I don't know. Just so beautiful down in those. So yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. So uh, myths or facts? Do you have any to clarify? Oh, I did. I did think this through a little bit. So in the healthcare setting, right? Because that's what I'm really focused on. But really you could think about this globally and, you know, a lot of other settings, but I think there's often the myth that we shouldn't ask about trauma because it's not going to feel safe to the client, right? Or the, the person that like, we don't want to open that can of worms or we're being nosy or it's just going to make them really upset and that kind of thing. And for a lot of folks, especially in healthcare, um, they want someone to notice and care that the things that have happened to them are causing problems in their lives, right? Um, and there's one of the things I think is really important when we're training providers is that um, we have to do that in a way that's trauma-informed and effective, which means 
we don't just let someone sort of jump into every detail of their childhood traumatic experience, right? And right. that we can we can gracefully and respectfully actually shape the conversation without going into the details that might really flood somebody so that they're really upset. Um, but that there are all these evidence-based screening tools that are generally going to get the information that we need to be able to say, oh, this is an issue that's of need for this person, and I can provide a resource or a connection that is separate from like digging into the material, what we would call like the traumatic material, the memories, the stories, the affects related to that. Right. Um, and I, I think a lot of healthcare providers, you know, maybe because they have not been trained in behavioral healthcare or because um, they don't have time. I mean, if we're really honest, like, the, you know, you begin to open that story and for some people, the clinician knows like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a 40 minute thing. And they have what, 15 minutes to deal right. with this every healthcare need, right? So there's some very real resistance in that way. But um, I think I, I really enjoy getting to kind of correct that story or talk about that story that, um, you know, one, you can skillfully introduce this idea and ask these questions without having to go way deep down into the story. And I can generally sort of support people learning how to do that. Um, and also that people want you to notice and they want you to know um yes there's a lot of shame yes there's a lot of avoidance that's a natural part of a trauma related response um but there's value in even just planting those seeds right to say this is something we care about for all people you know we want to begin to make this happen um so that was one i thought about the other one i thought about is um and this might be a little, I don't know, I, I question whether I should say this, but I'm going to. So, I, you know, in training healthcare providers, I've been surprised that every once in a while I get somebody who says something that to me is, you know, uh, not effective and not a good idea. So something like, well, everyone has traumas happen and people just need to get over it. Right. right? There is this mentality out there, even in healthcare, I think, again, based on people's own experiences, their own traumas, their own surviving, their own instincts, right, that that really what people need is to be given the message, like, just get on with your life, right? Um, stiff upper lip, that sort of idea, you know, and, um, <laughs> and, and that's, I, I try and explain that um, it's my understanding that that's, that's really a myth in the sense that um, it's not effective because we can't sort of reason ourselves through a biological process, right? So, you know, I, I think part of it makes it very clear to me that even in healthcare, doctors may not be getting, and I, you know, I'm not a doctor, I, I can't speak to what medical education is like, and I'm not trying to, but I'm just saying in, in training folks and talking with folks, sometimes, rarely, but sometimes I get that message that, um, it's just a psychological struggle and people should just get through it, right? And I think that it, I love that ACEs is bringing all this attention to the biology of it all because, you know, it's not just a psychological struggle. There's a shift in the way the brain and the body are functioning that makes it harder, makes life harder, right? And yeah. so, um, yeah, I, I think that's a myth out there. That's definitely a myth out there in some communities and with some folks that, um, and I always say, you know, if, if that worked for you, power to you, like, 
fantastic, you just got through, you're functioning, you don't have any concerns, your relationships are great, your job is great, you're taking care of your health, you're fine, power to you, that's awesome. But let's be clear that what worked for you may not work for all your patients. And there's enough evidence to at least offer that there may be more attention needed to these things, you know? Yes, and I, yes. And which leads me to the addiction part of it because- Oh, yes, yes. I think of my 83 year old mother who is now four months sober at 83 years old, because I always thought, Oh my gosh, you know, my mom would say, Oh, Terry, just let it go. It happened in the past, you know, just let it go. Let it go. You tell me all the time. And I always felt inferior because I thought, why can't I let this go? (laughs) You know, why can't I, why can't I just process this and be done with it and let it be in the past. And then obviously I learned now, but Then I, so the other day I was sitting down with her and I said, Hey mom, you know how you're always telling me just let it go. I said, I always envied you for being able to do that until I realized, Oh, she didn't let it go. She was Uh drowning it and smothering it with vodka. Yeah. Yeah. That is so, such a fantastic point. Yeah. Great transition. I mean, that is (laughs) totally true. You know, I think, um, So let's talk about that, right? This complicated relationship between substance use and trauma, right? So there's interestingly a few theories out there about why these two things um, co-occur so commonly. And everyone knows the one you mentioned at the beginning, right? Which is the self-medication theory, which basically posits that like, you know, folks have been exposed to some kind of trauma. That trauma creates symptoms that are very uncomfortable and problematic which we could talk about, but I'm going to assume most people know what they are. Um, And so people turn to a substance that's effective in fixing some of those symptoms for a while, right? And it's interesting, people will actually choose a substance that most meets the need of the trauma sort of impact, right? So if you think about okay, this person primarily feels very flat and depressed related to that history. Um, They're going to choose something activating like a stimulant like cocaine or whatever, right? Or people who are primarily very anxious as related to the trauma, they're going to choose something that flattens them like alcohol or opiate or benzodiazepine, something like that. So um, that's another cool and interesting layer to think about. Like, you know, why? Fascinating. Yeah, why do they choose or find, I wouldn't say choose, I don't like to use that language in substance use disorders, but why do they find certain drugs more effective, right? Um, It's not generally a choice, actually. Um, So, yeah, that's really interesting. So that's, you know, in general, I think a lot of people relate to that theory, and they find it really helpful to think through like, okay, you know, you have this trauma, you have these problematic symptoms, you self-medicate by taking a substance, and then that substance um, becomes biologically, um, you know, you become addicted biologically to that substance, right? And so now you have this whole other mess that you have to deal with in your life. Um, and that they feed each other, they help each other, really, right? Yeah. So um, we often see a very interconnected relationship between the symptoms of trauma and the symptoms of addiction, and they tend to go back and forth. And they kind of keep each other stuck in a lot of ways, right? Um, yeah which we could talk more about, but. And I was even going to say the cycle of shame as well. Oh, I absolutely. Can imagine pulling that in. I mean, yeah. yeah. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So there's some other theories though about like why these two things um, 
are connected. And um, one of them has to do with just vulnerability. So there's there's some wondering about whether or not perhaps um, like biologically, people's brains are equally predisposed to a PTSD reaction when they've had a trauma exposure as they may also be vulnerable to developing an addiction when they've been exposed to a substance. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. So like that, maybe there's something in the brains of people who have these co-occurring conditions where, you know, 70% of the American population is exposed to at least one traumatic event, but our rates of post-traumatic stress are much lower. They're around 7%, right? In this country. So right. there are lots of people who are exposed to trauma, but they don't have a, at least a clinical level trauma-related condition, right? So why is it that, you know, this particular group of folks have a PTSD response? And then similarly, right, lots of people drink a little or try a substance and do it a little, and they don't develop an addictive disorder. Um, but then some population of the you know, some group of our population, when exposed to these substances, they develop an addiction. And so there's some theories about, I want, you know, whether there's some vulnerability in the brain to both conditions. So that's interesting, right? Yeah. And then there's a third theory around high risk that basically the kinds of activities that either of these folks, these groups of folks tend to engage them, put them at high risk for the other condition, right? So if you... Um, are someone who's living in a pattern of exposing yourself to substance use routinely, you're at higher risk of being exposed to dangerous things, right? Just the lifestyle of a substance using, or certainly a substance, a person who uses a lot of substances. Um, I've been, you know, we're trying not to use that substance abusing language anymore. So I'm trying to be conscious of that. But um, that lifestyle tends to be connected to trauma exposures. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff that happens when you're addicted to substances. It's an awful, awful thing. Um, and then similarly, you know, if you're um, sort of in some kind of high risk situation around trauma, there's a vice versa kind of situation. So I lost my train of thought a little bit, but yeah, that's, that's right. No. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah, it's exciting, I mean, interesting. I love it because you're passionate about it, and I get all excited about it too because I am as well. So I I followed right along. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. But they do co-occur, you know. And I think for me, it's about I've worked with so many people. I mean, I've been in full-time clinical practice for 11 years, and I've worked with so many people. And the value of being able to help someone who's struggling with addiction recognize the role that trauma has played in that whole pattern is so important because we live in a society that still really judges and stigmatizes people who struggle with substance use problems. And right. there's still this idea that it's a willful choice and people need to just make a decision. And, you know, that there's such a, a stigma and a myth around that. And so being able to say to folks like, no, this is actually much more complicated and yeah. much more integrated. And these things that have happened in your life are relevant biologically, psychologically, socially, um, in every way to this yes. addiction. It's just, I, I love being able to give people that moment of, you know, a little reduction in the pressure. Yes. Well, and I think, again, it just comes back to ACE of science, and I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg on it because 
there, how much is impacted by, you, you look at the, the incarceration and um, people who are filling the prisons and their trauma history. I mean, I just talked to somebody about that yeah. and the addictions and the, you know, the food addictions and um, yeah, just, again, I think trauma is just such a huge, huge part of it. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. anything else that you want to touch upon that we haven't, we haven't yet talked about? Um, not really. I think, you know, there was a, a you know, for me, I, I just like to support the idea that providers of any kind are going to take an a minute, right, take some time to um, look at their practice, their approach and their, their, maybe their organization even and try and sort through whether or not it's trauma-informed. And there's some good resources out there, um, I think, for a self-guided process for people who are wanting to do that. And then there are also, um, you know, plenty of folks doing that work, I think, around the United States. Um, so I just gonna, was going to mention that um, I really do like the work um, of community connections. I just was going to throw this plug out there. And you might already know about that. but. Um, Harrison Fallett, you know, our um, authors who have been around doing this work, clinical work, and then documenting it and writing about it for a long, long time, like well before me. Um, and I find their their resources really helpful, very accessible, you know, um, a really nice guide to beginning to have those conversations and such. So I was just going to mention that. Awesome. Yeah, please do. I love it. Yes. And that <laughs> brings me to my question that I always ask everybody because I just, I love the answers and maybe that was your answer, but if you could meet anyone in the world <laughs> that are alive to help you with your journey and either personal, professional or both, who would it be? I saw that question. And I found it difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think in part because when I answer it, I think, well, why don't you just go do that then, Andrea? Um, <laughs> so the name that comes to me is is Stephanie Covington. I don't know if that's a name that you've heard before on I your show. I've heard that name. Yes. Yeah. So again, um, she's did she been. Co did she co-author a book with? Um... Um, oh, I thought she co-authored a book with, with one of my podcast guests. But no, go ahead. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know her personally, so I, um, but I have followed her work for a long time. She's, she's really been, uh, one of the, uh, sort of early people involved in trying to transform substance use treatment uh attending to the needs of women and focusing on the the trauma related issues that come up in substance use treatment for women and she seems to be this very avid you know i mean she's published so many evidence-based treatment manuals and books and you know she's she's got to be upwards there in her years i don't really know but i mean she's still coming out with more and more like tools and resources and i just i i find her uh, like compelling. It's pretty amazing. So, um, but she's someone I probably could meet <laughs> because I, I work in this field and um, I bet I could figure that out. So in a way, I think the question's helpful because it motivates me to think oh, I should just try and make that happen. Yeah. You know, right. Go to one of her trainings or um, try and try and make that happen. So, but I, I'm in very, I've been um, inspired by her work. I mean, for a decade already. And 
it's pretty cool. So yeah, well, that's why I love to ask the question because I one I just I love to find out about fascinating people that I may not know about, but two, uh, the reasonings behind why people are, are, are lean towards one particular person. Yeah, I feel like she laid out this path that I have really gotten to benefit from. And awesome. I'm very grateful for that, but I don't even know her. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, no, but I mean, it's true because the people that, uh, you know, mine is Mother Teresa, but only because, you know, I want to emulate just her philosophy on, um, you know, getting down in the trenches and holding out my hands and helping mm -hmm. people out mm -hmm. and, and yeah. healing life. So, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. That's right. Cool. So, all right. Well, how do people get a hold of you? Do you do speaking engagements outside of North Carolina? Um, I have not yet done any speaking engagements outside of North Carolina. Am I saying that correctly? I think that's true. I've done some <laughs> webinars for other states. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, this is a piece of, this is sort of my side gig, right? Which is kind of amazing. I mean, I see clients um, really full time. I mean, it's a four hour week, I mean, a four day week. And then I do training and consulting on the side. And in general, right now, that's coordinated through a, a system here at Duke. But um, I am definitely looking to grow my skills in this area and to be more helpful to more people. So awesome. um, yeah, folks can definitely get in touch with me. Uh, I'll send you something to put up with my email and my awesome. phone number and that kind of thing. And um, yeah, I'd be happy to be of service however I can and grow this part of my life. So I appreciate awesome. that opportunity. And so the audio for the audio audience, what is your email? Oh, sure. Um, so my, we'll just, I'm going to give you my personal email actually. So that would be Andrea M Winkler at gmail.com. Wonderful. Okay. Yeah. So people can yeah. reach out. Awesome. Be great. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, um, you know, I just want to thank you for all that you're doing and for joining me today and, and you. sharing your beautiful, brilliant insights. Uh, oh, thank you. I, uh, I know when I get excited, I talk fast. So I apologize if I race through anything, but this is, you know, such a important thing for me. And I just really appreciate the opportunity. So thank you so much for getting Absolutely. to talk. Yeah. One yeah. of my dearest friends, we, when we get together, we, we go, we, we call it hopping down the bunny trail because we'll just <laughs> hop on down and go this way. And then we come back around and go, but we get so excited and we just have to talk about it. So, and I yeah. love it. <laughs> yeah. I like being able to have that space. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. All right. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us on the Healing Place podcast today. And until next time, remember, be gentle with yourself. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you.